Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV Journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. Today's Issues Up Close episode is a conversation on the TPV January 6 Forum, a scholarly forum that would go beyond the headlines and the what happened as a first step towards understanding why it happened and, of greatest importance, can it happen again? Moderated by George Michael, this episode delves into the work of Rick Jensen, Max Taylor and Jeffrey Kaplan. We hope you enjoy this episode. Good afternoon, if you're in uh, the Netherlands, my name is George Michael. I'm a professor at Westfield State University in Massachusetts. So thank you for inviting me today to participate in this conference looking at the January 6th Capitol uh, riot. So I'm going to introduce the speakers today. Uh, first, we have um, Dr. Richard Bach-Jensen. Uh, Richard Bach-Jensen is a professor for the Louisiana Scholars College and the Northwestern State University of Louisiana. He is the author of The Battle Against Anarchist Terrorism, and today he's going to present his paper. Uh, the title is Uncanny Precedent, The March on Rome. Um, we also have Dr. Jeffrey Kaplan. I've known Jeffrey for a long time. He has held a number of academic positions. Currently, he teaches at the doctoral school of security science at the University of Ubuda at the Danube Institute in Budapest, Hungary. He's the author and editor of many books, uh, including most recently, Apocalypse, Revolution, and Terrorism. That book was published by Routledge in 2019. Today, he's going to present his article, uh, the title of which is A Conspiracy of Dunces, Good Americans versus a cabal of satanic pedophiles. And uh, finally, uh, we have Dr. Max Taylor. Uh, Max Taylor is currently a professor at the Department of Security and Crime Sciences at the University College London. He has authored and co-authored a number of books, most recently, Evolutionary Psychology and Terrorism, along with Jason Roach and Ken Peace. Today, he's going to discuss his article. Uh, the title is Some Preliminary Thoughts Prompted by President Trump's 6th January Speech, Words, Enemies, Affordances. Okay, so, um, Professor Jensen, do you want to go first, sir? Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Um, I was initially approached about participating in this project and was asked if I could say something about anarchists and because of the linkages between um, Antifa or Antifa and anarchists, although it's not a purely anarchist organization. But I was struck, since I am an Italian historian, my original training, between the uh, quite incredible 
parallels between Mussolini's march on Rome in October 1922 and the assault on the Capitol in, uh, uh, on January 6th. So I, uh, looking at my paper, I, I uh, try to make or make three main points. Uh, the first point is that showing these similarities between uh, Mussolini and Trump, uh, the march on the Capitol and the, the march on the, the, the capital of Italy. Um, so we have in this case both uh, uh, two charismatic leaders, Mussolini and Trump, uh, who urge their followers uh, to march on the capital or, or, or capital of their country in order to coerce the authorities into accepting their control of the government. It's a supreme case of psychological warfare. Uh, uh, second main point, uh, uh, Mussolini succeeded. I mean, that's my thesis. Obviously, Mussolini succeeded. Trump did not succeed in his plan. And Mussolini succeeded because of the deep divisions between the non-fascist political parties, fears of bloody socialist uh, Bolshevik revolution in Italy um, and throughout Europe, actually, um, and the support of key members amongst the Italian political and military elites. Can't emphasize that too much. The elites helped Mussolini get into power. Uh, my third main point would be that uh, uh, Trump failed in his endeavor to use psychological warfare and pressure to remain president uh, because I would say, first of all, that the United States um, Democratic Party had achieved a, a bare majority in the elections of 2020 and could offer a united front to Trump um, moreover, the threat of the far left, in particular Antifa, was very small in the United States, very small compared to what the situation was in Italy in the fall of 1922. Uh, moreover, Antifa, Antifa, uh, the left, did not seem to be a threat uh, in any other country in the world particularly any other important country. Uh, and uh, finally, the United States Army and uh, the Republican elites, uh, particularly Vice President Pence and uh, Majority Leader O'Connell, did not support uh, Trump's plan to overturn the elections. Um, arguably, then, uh, Mussolini was a more skilled politician than Trump. His sense of timing was better. And his control of the violent propensities of his followers was better, if only barely. Uh, I argue that uh, the fact that the march on the Capitol on January 6th became violent, pushed people like O'Connell and uh, Pence uh, into standing up for the Constitution and opposing uh, Trump. Um, and one might ask why Pence didn't go along with the, with the coup. Um, uh, but uh, the situation seems to be fundamentally because Pence felt his back was against the wall 
And uh, Mussolini was very nervous that in his case, uh, the Pence figure in Italy was the king uh, who could make decisive, as head of state could make decisive uh, changes to the um, to the political situation in, in Italy. And Mussolini never wanted to uh, uh, back the king into a corner, never wanted uh, huge amounts of violence in Rome, for example, with the uh, black shirts marching on Rome, uh, never wanted to, th this violence to force the king uh, to unleash the army against the fascists. So I could say more, but I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, do we want to do uh, questions immediately after each person's presentation? Okay, that sounds good. Um, Professor Jensen, it, orchestrating a coup would be very difficult in the United States because of the size of the country and because the system of federalism that we have. But if America remains divided and polarized, do you think the prospect of a coup might become more feasible someday? Can you see any scenario in the future where that might happen? Well, uh, that, that, that's a good question. And I'm not an American historian. Uh, I'm an Italian historian. Uh, I suppose, I suppose uh, I've been thinking about uh, the situation post-election uh, and what could Trump have done differently, maybe, that would allowed him to succeed? Uh, Mussolini's genius was in seizing the moment, that the momentum, the fascist momentum was at a peak virtually in the fall of uh, 1922. If he had waited longer, uh, the situation would have changed. Uh, Italy was in an economic chaos after World War One, but the situation started to improve by the end of 1922-1923. So uh, if he had waited much longer, then he might have missed his chance and may never have taken power. So I, I, I guess I would raise the question whether uh, Trump waited too long. His sense of timing was off. Uh, that uh, right after the election, uh, before O'Connell had made his views known about uh, the legitimacy of Biden's election uh, and, um, and and Pence, because both of them by January 6th had recognized, publicly recognized that Biden had won the election. Uh, so what, what if uh, Trump had acted earlier, uh, after the right after the election, when things were not quite so clear? Uh, could he have succeeded? Maybe. The pro a problem, of course, was that he needed a focus point, such as the validation of the votes of the Electoral College on January 6th. And that would not have occurred um, right after the election um, in, in November. Um, one key point that uh, helped Mussolini to come to power is that there were important regional uh, seizure, seizures of power throughout northern Italy, northern and central Italy, that uh, preceded the march on Rome. And historians have suggested that uh, the, um, uh, the government Rome was very shaken by the uh, seizure, for a temporary seizure, for example, of 
oh, the prefecture in Florence and Cremona and various other towns. Uh, although the Italian army was ultimately able to recapture these places, but that really frightened the government. Uh, Trump had a kind of a, a parallel event going on in the U.S. that that were there were protests in various other cities in the U.S., uh, capitals of uh, different states in the U.S., uh, but they were they were small potatoes. They, they weren't really very important. Now, in the future, if you could have a political leader who could, uh, you know, have have this dual power base of having revolts throughout the country in state capitals throughout the country and in the national capital, uh, perhaps then there would be a greater success of, of overturning uh, an election. Okay, thank you. Any further questions for Professor Jensen? Okay, Professor Taylor, do you want to go next? Okay, um, when I started to think about this event on January the 6th. It, it, first of all, it seemed to me such a peculiar thing to have happened in America. It's not the kind of um, not the kind of thing you associate there, nor is it in most of the democracies. So it seemed to me that it was a bit peculiar and a bit odd, and I didn't quite know how to make sense of it. So I really drew on two, two threads which underpinned the uh, paper that was published in TPV. Um, and I, I'll just outline what those threads are and then go on to talk a little bit about what what that might mean in the terms I understand it anyway. Um, these kind of complicated things, complicated events, always seem to me to be best seen as a process rather than a, a state, although I mean the events occurred on a particular day, they clearly have a history, a long history and a background and a very complex one. So how do you make sense of a process like that, which seemed to express itself in uh, January 6th? Well, two threads, as I said earlier. The first of them is um, really drawing on work that Ehud Sprinzak did in 1985. And Ehud talked about the iceberg model of political extremism. Now, that paper was really about Israel, but the ideas embedded in it extend beyond that, uh, and I think are relevant still today. And basically, what Edward said was that there is, if we think about political extremism, there is an extreme tip, as it were, the top of the iceberg, and that's the bit that you see. But rather like a, a real iceberg, underneath it, there's an enormous array of uh, people who don't hold extreme views but are sympathetic. And the critical issue then is how do you, how do people make that transition uh, from being non-extreme but sympathetic to being extreme? That's a challenge. I don't think we've resolved that by any means yet. Uh, Edward talks about the tip ebbing and flowing. So it's knowing what the ebbs are or the flows are that's Perhaps one of the critical things we need to think about. The other bit that thread that seemed to me to be relevant was work that Derek Cornish and Ron Clark did on the reasoning criminal uh, in 2014. The book was published. But they, they do something which seems to me really important. They distinguish between the factors that lead to people being engaged in things. So they're talking about criminality, but 
I've used this in other forums to talk about terrorism. Um, they talk about factors that lead to people being engaged in a process and the things that make you do that event. Now, the model they use is residential burglary. So they talk about people being, have been engaged in criminal activities or being the criminal milieu. But what is it that makes you choose that house as opposed to many other houses who are probably all the same in many ways? And the critical insight, it seems to me, that Cornish and Clark make is that the things that you might do to change being involved in the milieu might have absolutely nothing to do with what influences people doing things. So that's how I try to make sense of the of the big story, as it were, the milieu uh, or the or the bottom of Sprinzak's iceberg and the immediate story, which is violence precipitating on the 6th of January and, and, and its expression. How, how do we make sense of it? Well, I just then chose, by way of illustration, really, two quite separate, but given that context, related things. The first being, was there something about some speech that made a difference? Was that the precipitating factor? Was that the thing that moved people towards um, expression of violence in the way that they did? Uh, and the second thread that I wanted to look at was um, a very broad notion of social and cultural context uh, and the sense of American national interest. Uh, and I picked up there on what I think is an under underrated um, paper that Huntington wrote about um, American identity and the factors that determine American identity, uh, and particularly his view that American identity is actually to do with not being something rather than being something, and that the history of America is, that is con constructing itself by not being British or by not being communist or by not being something else, uh, rather than in a positive way, uh, a challenging and I don't doubt controversial view, but nonetheless an interesting one to explore further. So in the paper, I tried to just develop those two ideas, um, implicitly drawing on Ehud's and Cornish and Clark's notions about big and little stories in explaining events. Um, and it seems to me, actually, which is the kind of thing that academics do, neither of them are really sufficient explanations for what happened there. They both, I think, the big story and the little story tell you a piece of it, but in themselves, they don't provide a sufficient explanation. And I went on to suggest in the paper that actually an idea that might be uh, useful to help us understand how these big stories and little stories come together is a concept of affordance. Uh, and affordance is uh, not something that causes you to do something, but something that sets the occasion for a piece of behavior to occur. So really that's, that's, that's the core of my paper. Um, look at big things and look at little things and then try to think about how they join together in determining people's particular actions. Okay, uh, Professor Taylor, Donald Trump is a formidable orator, but
but he's not real articulate, at least in a classical sense. Do you see anything that's intrinsic about a style that makes the speeches so emotive and so exhortatory? Um, if he weren't a celebrity, do you think anybody would really be that interested in him? He, he has some of the qualities of a great orator. Uh, one of the things which I did do, which I didn't put in this paper because it, it, it just would have kind of diverted attention away from other things, was to do a comparison of Trump's speeches using this LIWC um, speech analysis software, which is, which is really very simple and it's very crude. I don't want to make more out of it than, than it is. Uh, I did a comparison of Trump's speech with one or two of Churchill's speeches. Now, Churchill would be regarded, I think, as being a great orator. Uh, but, of course, he's an orator in a context. I mean, I'm not sure Churchill standing on a street corner would necessarily attract the attention that he did in the House of Parliaments during the war, for example. And I think you might probably say the same for, for, for Trump as well. Trump isn't a great... Trump is a great orator in a particular context. Uh, he probably isn't a great orator outside of that context, but that's where we are. That's that's how you look at these things. Trump's speeches across the um, pre- and post-election period, oddly enough, were very similar. They didn't differ hugely. And the last one, which I thought might have been a precipitator of violence, wasn't really all that different from the ones that had gone before. Now, there were differences in, in um, the, the, the tone uh, that the LIWC speech analysis allows you to make a judgment about, but there was nothing really, um, nothing really strikingly different uh, that would lead you to suggest that Trump had, his, had, had a kind of really clever oratorial grasp on things and was directing it. And presumably, therefore, you, you think about this as Trump as an enabler. Trump is part of, if you like, the array of events of stimuli that set the scene for the behaviours that we saw, but not in itself necessarily a cause. Okay, thank you. Any other questions for Professor Taylor? Okay, Professor Kaplan, you ready to go? Yeah. Um, first, I wanted to say a quick word about the forum itself. It is something that the journal Terrorism and Political Violence have wanted to put together for a long time. And I think there will be a series of these in the future. The idea that, yes, we do scholarly papers, and as David Rappaport um, once noted, I think, and I always keep in mind, a journal is not a newspaper. Um, we, we don't try to reflect current events. But at the same time, I think we put together a group of scholars worldwide who can look deeply at events. And so the forum was an attempt to be something between traditional scholarship and perhaps, I hate to say the word traditional journalism, the idea of making our work relevant and accessible and um, beyond simply the context of the of the traditional journal itself. And that's the reason we put together this group. Um, they're quite varied, uh, with, as we'll get into a bit later, with scholars from the U.S., historians um, from the U.S. as well, as well as scholars from the EU, um, specifically the Netherlands and Finland, um, looking at Scandinavia. My part of this was 
called The Conspiracy of Dunces, Good Americans versus a Cabal of, Senate, of, of Satanic Pedophiles. And the name was, um, uh, was chosen for two reasons. One, it parodies in a way one of my absolute favorite novels of all time, which was A Confederacy of Dunces, as opposed to A Conspiracy of Dunces. And the other was that so much of what drove what happened on January 6th was not the political events of the election itself. It was the underlying cultural events that pushed, uh, that pushed and in some ways made January 6th almost inevitable. The conspiracy theories that are becoming increasingly mainstream, the turning away from traditional rational discourse towards a truth that every every man and every woman has their own truth and we don't necessarily have to share it at all um what's real to me what's true to me may not be true to you but since i'm right um who cares so these two all of this came together on january 6th the speeches by donald trump donald trump jr and for a touch of the bizarre rudy giuliani um, to the 10,000 that gathered there were in some ways incendiary and were interpreted by the people who eventually attacked the Capitol as, as literal marching orders. What's remarkable is how few people actually were there. Um, 10,000 is not a large demonstration by any, by Washington standards or by any means. So the numbers that were actually turned out probably were a great disappointment to those who were hoping for a true Boston Tea Party revolution. Um, they were, however, a triggering event. And so people headed in a march to the Capitol in the belief um, through Donald Trump's speech that he was going to lead them to the Capitol. Well, he didn't. Um, <laughs> And it's unlikely he would because courage is not one of his better aspects um, throughout, throughout his career. But in any case, they made the march and a group went into the Capitol, which was clearly pre-planned, and others followed them. And yet others went in simply because of the wave effect. Um, that's where people were going, so let's follow, um, like, lemmings to, like lemmings over the cliff. In any case, the only real study we've had so far of those who actually entered the Capitol was by Pape and Rudy, and Ruby, excuse me. And it was kind of remarkable. They studied 193 people who were arrested. And of those 193, only 20 had ties, formal ties to the far right or were from some kind of a militia group or some kind of an organized right wing group. The rest of them were a rather remarkable group of demonstrators altogether. Um, the average age was 40, which is getting pretty much over the hill for a good group for a good group of rioters and demonstrators. 40% um, were small business owners or white or white collar employees, which are hardly the kind of people you'd expect to man the barricades in a good revolution. Um, Interestingly, few were actually from Republican areas. Most of them were from Democratic districts or swing districts. What they did share, though, I think was important and is too often missed in the discussion of what happened in January 6th. 
They shared a wide degree of belief in QAnon and other conspiracy theories and conspiracy ideas. Specifically, um, there is an evolution to the theft of the uh, theft of the election um, scenario that in the teachings of QAnon that is actually quite fascinating because you see a historical development here. And here we're dealing with cultic milieu theory, which essentially the cultic milieu is that area where forbidden and forgotten knowledge resides. Nothing dies in the cultic milieu. It stays and it's recombined with other ideas adapted to modern times and eventually makes a reappearance. So what we saw actually had its roots in the 1980s Satanism scare, which for those who don't remember the 1980s um, burned very hot for a while. It was the idea that a cabal of Satanists and pedophiles who have taken over the daycare centers and some schools are capturing children, um, sexually abusing them, sacrificing them to Satan, and getting away with it. And yes, they happen to be Democrats, as a matter of fact, which would come later. Um, it's amazing that there's a party platform for that. But in any case, the it burned away after a time because there was, like many conspiracy theories, there was no evidence for it. Um, none of the children who were sexually abused showed any signs of, or memory of sexual abuse. And there was never any finding and nobody ever disappeared. So, and there were no bodies found. So it was very hard to sustain it. Um, it went on for a while and then in good cultic milieu fashion disappeared for a time. And it reemerged in a different form with Pizzagate, if you remember that. Pizzagate was the idea that the satanic democratic pedophiles were actually had an underground catacombs. And this is where they took the kidnapped children who were probably children of Republicans or good people. And they took them to the catacombs under the ping pong pizzeria in Washington of all places. And this burned for quite a while. Alex Jones on Infowars made a, made a career out of this. Um, it all went to pieces when somebody took it a little too seriously and some guy from North Carolina with an assault weapon showed up at the ping pong pizzeria demanding to see the catacombs. Um, he was arrested, the catacombs were never found, Alex Jones was duly sued. Um, and so Pizzagate disappeared for a time. But what QAnon has done is take the pieces of these earlier conspiracy theories and mix them together with alt-right ideas of a deep state and a group of elites who conspire to govern and to control the United States and ultimately the world in their own interest. Essentially, the deep state idea is just the Jewish conspiracy theories um, from the Middle Ages to the present in more modern form. And that's what the cultic milieu allows you to do. In any case, out of this emerges a soteriological idea, which is for those who haven't gone in, who haven't been through um, a theology school as I have, the soteriology, soteriology 
is the idea that you are, there is a savior, a soter, who is going to come to earth and save everybody. Donald Trump, of all people, became the soter. And he is the one that would defeat the satanic cabal and rescue all of these endangered children and bring the world and the United States to a kind of perfect state through a process that was called the storm, which is just a politicization of the biblical apocalypse. So a lot of ideas and pieces are being put together here. In reality, QAnon basically functions as a kind of cult group, all the 1960s, but it's decentralized. They don't have meetings. They don't have a charismatic leader who puts everybody together, but they do have a figure who is either mythical or Ron Watkins from, from 8chan. But in any case, um, the ideas that are propounded here are never straightforward. They're always oracular. They're always prophetic. And it allows the believer to interpret it as he or she will. So these series of beliefs are what pushed people to believe that the election was stolen. It was the piece that allowed January 6th to happen. And so these were the two parts of the paper that I put together. Okay, Jeff, you've answered pretty, I think answered some of my question already, but let me just uh, give it to you anyway. QAnon, in my opinion, seems to be one of the least credible conspiracy theories. It seems very divorced from reality. One variant has that uh, John F. Kennedy is going to return, that he's still alive. Um, but what do you think the followers, followers of QAnon find so psychologically comforting about this particular conspiracy theory? How can something that, in my mind, seems so painfully ridiculous resonate with so many people? Let me answer the second part of your question second and disagree with the first part. Um, QAnon is not a particular conspiracy theory. It's a bricolage of ideas. And so you can put together things that don't seem to have a basis in reality, certainly, but also any connection to each other. For example, the JFK um, conspiracy theory, which has been around since 1962, I believe, in various forms, and the idea that the lizard people are running America and the world, um, which is somewhat later, would seem to have nothing to do with each other, but they fit neatly in here. Um, it's a bricolage. They take pieces from past conspiracy theories, they take wonderful ideas from the internet and the world, and they throw them all out there in an oracular vision. And of course, they don't seem to a rational mind to have anything to do with each other. But on a deeper level, they do. And this is a human characteristic, not just of, not just of conspiracy nuts like um, perhaps QAnon, but we all want to see some kind of a rational pattern in an irrational world that there is an underlying order to a disordered world. There's something deeply human in that. And so it's a short step from saying, well, predestination, God has written it all, or God is in control, a good Muslim view, to going further 
to say that, ah, the hidden hand behind history are the Jews. And they've been plotting everything ever since the beginning of time to something like QAnon, which is, yes, there's a hidden hand, but there's a savior. It's all the same. We need to have some kind of underlying order. We need to have some kind of pattern. And that's simply human nature. And these are people who are pushed to an extreme that most of us don't go to. And I think you have to look at what's going on around to understand why. I mean, we have a pandemic. We have economic change. We have political change. And we have a, a situation of enemy where, ah, I had a I had a nine to five job and it was secure, and now I can't go to my nine to five job anymore. Um, I can't leave my house. I have to see my family every day. Oh my God, you know it becomes a very time. To put it a better way, that you suddenly have so much time on your hands. And you want to know why all, the, all these things have happened. So where an earlier generation went to the Bible and then through hermeneutics came out with wonderful conspiracy theories, we go to the Internet. And QAnon is ubiquitous, as are other conspiracy theories, other beliefs. So it's, it's enabled this kind of thing and magnified it. But it's always been there. Max, you're... No, I was just going to say, I think I, I agree with you, but it, I think we underestimate the power of distributed networks on the Internet. Karen Norsettine has written about this very forcefully, I think. Um, and QAnon is essentially uh, an Internet phenomenon um, that, that doesn't dismiss it. I think that actually points up to the power of it. You, you've seen the expression now of what we see all over the place in different ways in social media, uh, but very much focused around things that people want to hear, or at least some people want to hear. And the Internet enables that fantastically. Absolutely. When I was doing the field work in the radical right and other radical groups, um, which were before 1995, you had, they, had, they were able to disseminate their ideas on mailing lists, which never had more than 2,000 people. Um, the ideas had to go hand-to-hand -hand in mimeographed letters or mimeographed sheets. Now everything is instant, it's global, and virtually everyone in the world has access to it. And they, they interconnect, they interact, so I, I absolutely agree. The process isn't new, but the, de the degree of it, the dimension of it is. The cultic milieu was Roughly 10 to maybe 20% of every recorded culture that we've had, people who at some point just say, no, I don't believe that the world is as it is. I don't believe the what everybody else believes. I don't believe the norms of my society. But now those numbers in the Internet age are out the window. I mean, it's far more. And we have no idea how many are susceptible to ideas like this. But there are a lot. Um, and they don't, there's no one particular type. It could be well-educated well people, poorly educated people, all races, all classes. Matt? 
you know, this is reflected in the popular culture too, the conspiracies. Uh, for example, there's a new Matrix movie coming out. And of course, a big part of that is the, the blue pill and the red pill. You take the blue pill, you see the world just as uh, the mainstream media would have you believe in the red pill. Then you can see this deeper reality, what goes on behind the scenes. Yes, Jeff, there are also some indications that QAnon now is making some headway overseas in Germany, for example, and being kind of repackaged. Uh, do you think this is something that will be globalized, the glo globalization of the QAnon phenomenon? It is globalized, and actually that is a wonderful lead-in, thank you, to, so, to some of the, pa the papers of some who couldn't make this forum. And um, it might be a good moment to talk about some of the paper, to quickly summarize some of the papers of those who weren't here. Um, specifically, Beatrice de Graaf writes exactly um, about that, the globalization of QAnon ideas and the like. Her piece was, how contagious were the capital riots in praxis and perception? And she states that, for example, just to, to begin by following up your question, um, QAnon has no borders at all. You know, there were 40,000 QAnon-related posts in the Netherlands alone last year. And 40,000 in a country that size is not small. And it's not a sample of who believes in QAnon. It's simply something we can count. How many posts, how many um, internet posts out there were there? She goes on, she, she opens with Bridget Nakos's contagion hypothesis for January 6th, which for both the conspiracy theories that underlied it and for the attack itself, um, the fact that it happened in America which is a media center, makes it even more likely that it will be followed el elsewhere. Um, EU governments were very critical of the events of January 6th and very critical of Donald Trump, but they're also very worried that something like that could happen. Um, there was an attack in 2020 on the Bundestag, for example, which was small and easily broken up, but it indicated that it can happen outside of America. And it's something that people are very concerned about. Radical right groups are transatlantic in nature, as you know, George, from, from your, the work that we've done. And so the idea that something just happens isolated in one place, particularly in America, which is a center of both media and radical thought, radical right thought, is in, almost inconceivable. Lena Malki um, carries on with this idea. She has, we have been warned public debate on the capital attack in Finland and Sweden. She also looks at that question of can it happen here? And Finnish and Swedish discourse, in her view, focused on the power of words to destabilize democracy and the power of conspiracy theories. I always had this wonderful image of Finland where I spent a couple of years, a uh, bicentennial scholar at the University of Helsinki, as the most rational country in the world. I mean, it was, it, I almost idealized it in many ways. It had a radical right party called the True Finns, 
who were way out on the fringes and completely ignored by everybody. They renamed themselves. They got a more charismatic leader. They got rid of some of the wingnuts in the group. And now they are the Finn party. And they, in 2021, their polling numbers are 21.9%, making them the most popular party in Finland, having changed their ideas very little, simply the rhetoric. So she states that polarization in Finland and Sweden haven't reached the levels of the US, but it's something that people very much fear. They don't want an Americanization of their, of their political systems, although Sweden has been Americanized for a long time. She does note on a positive note, an interesting note, that not all groups and not all of the radical groups in Finland and Sweden from the radical right endorse violence. And she gives the example of the Nordic resistance movement, which has been called the smiling face of national socialism. And what they do is they urge propaganda of the word and not the deed, because we're so close to taking power from an elective electorally, violence would simply put us in jail and invalidate the ideas that are on the on the verge of taking over. This is still very far from it, but security forces there are warning of political violence. But that's what they pay security forces to do. Um, finally, I think one of the most important pieces we had was from David Rappaport, and he talks about the capital attack and terrorism's fifth wave. It's a kind of precursor to the book that's just about to come out from Columbia called Waves of Political Terrorism, which is the summation of all of his thought and work on four waves theory. And he states, quote, if it had been successful, meaning January 6th, as a coup, there could have been enormous violence and they could have lasted for years. He notes that there were three previous attacks on the Capitol. In 1954, the Nationalist Party members shot up the House chamber in a demand for Puerto Rican independence. In 1971, the Weather Underground bombed a Capitol bathroom um, with no casualties, but it cost $300,000 to repair the plumbing. And in 1983, the May 19th group um, bombed the North Wing of the Capitol. The first of those attacks was a second wave or na the nationalist wave of terrorism. The last two were from the third wave or the leftist wave of terrorism. He said most rioters were traditional Republicans rather than traditional terrorists or revolutionaries. He stated, and I'm not sure this is right, that many demonstrators carried white supremacist symbols. Um, I didn't see that, but perhaps. He states that right-wing militias were significant in the fourth wave of terrorism, but after the Oklahoma City bombing, they tended to fade away. However, white supremacists are obsessed by declining white birth, rate, birth rates and the loss of status, and thus the great replacement theory of Brendan Tarrant that has become ubiquitous in the far right these days. He says, when Trump declared a national emergency to seal the southern borders, this played on those white nationalist fears and brought him tremendous support in those quarters. He embraced the far right, especially after Charlottesville. 
during Charlottesville and afterwards. He notes that riot violence between 2010 and 2020 was at a 50-year high, and Trump, for his part, consistently blamed Antifa for it. Um, as baseless as that is, 58% of Republicans believe that, um, both for general violence and 58% of Republicans believe January 6th were actually Antifa members in middle American drag kind of thing. Um, in 2017, the FBI reported 7,175 hate crimes, the highest since 2008, and his, his primary, the ultimate thesis that he makes is that the right wing will be terrorism's fifth wave, and that's the point he makes in his book as well. So um, I think that catches us up with the long way of answering your question by giving the answers of the others who had been part of the forum. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Are there any further questions? Yes. Uh, yes. Go ahead, uh, Richard. Uh, uh, a couple of uh, of questions uh, for um, a lot of our listeners who may not know very well the uh, you know the four and now five wave description of terrorism, and of course I'm very familiar with the first four waves. What exactly is uh, David's uh, definition of the fifth wave of uh, terrorism uh, that is essentially right wing is 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 that yeah. what it boils down to that's what uh, it boils down to yeah um, thus invalidating a lot of what I've written on the fifth wave such as life in academics um, another well, it's kind of more a comment than than a question. Is uh, I found both uh, David Rappaport's and and your paper, uh, Jeff, um, interesting because of their analysis of the crowds uh, that assaulted the Capitol on January sixth, and I w that made me very curious to see what were the crowds that uh, marched on Rome in 1922 made up. Uh, I mean, they're always talked to said to be black shirts. Well, who were the black shirts? I can find no scholarly information on who exactly made up the March on Rome on really? uh, uh, October 1922. And I went looking in Italian sources as well as English language sources. I can't find that information. Maybe it's out there somewhere, uh, but but uh, that just shows you how uh, a kind of uh, um, event like ours today can raise questions in, in other fields. It's amazing. So I've been looking into the Hungarian Arrow Cross, for example, uh -huh. and they have in-depth sociological data on who these guys were, where they came from, what their backgrounds were, what their ideas were. So the idea, it, it's hard to believe that nobody has done that same kind of research with the way with the fascists in Rome. The 1920s. It, it it has been done for fascism in general. You know, it's usually said, oh, it's lower middle class, it's army veterans, it's students. Uh, but as far as I can see, nobody has specifically focused on those that marched on Rome in in 1922. Maybe they feel there just isn't enough information. Although I can't, I can't. Uh, uh, that, that, that can't be really true because people were very proud after the fact to have marched on Rome. One little piece of curiosity uh, that I was going to throw into this is that I found, I did find out that there were at least between 200 and 300 Jewish Italians 
that joined the black uh, the black shirts and marched on Rome in mm -hmm. October 1922 because and I don't know if you agree with me or disagree with me, uh, I don't believe that either Mussolini or Trump were diehard racists like Hitler was. Uh, but they used racism when it was politically convenient. And so uh, Mussolini was happy for Jewish Italians to join the fascist movement in the 1920s. And he thought anti-Semitism was stupid, uh, but he changed his mind about using it as a political tool in the 30s when he allied with Hitler, in which he, then he did, of course, enact all kinds of anti-Semitic laws in, in Italy. Go ahead, Max. A little a caution, I feel, in, in the discussion is we run the risk of labeling all the people who were in Washington or all the people who supported Trump um, as somehow or other like fascists or like extreme extremists. And they clearly weren't. Hmm. And, and I think the problem for problem for everybody, I think, is that Trump's appeal goes way beyond, if you like, the tip of Ehud's uh, iceberg to something that's much, much broader than that. And we, we need to ask questions about why that is. Um, we see it in the UK, uh, not not in the way that it's expressed itself in America, but certainly the the, 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 the the sort of threads of it are apparent here. And one thing that we've nobody's mentioned yet, which seems to me to be quite significant, is the way that um, opinion substitutes for knowledge. Uh, hmm. We can see that very much in in the de debate around COVID, and we we're now all agonising over the variant, new variant COVID. Uh, the politicians, or some of them anyway, are explicitly saying, "Well, these sci these scientists know nothing; they've got hmm. it wrong." Uh, and then drawing on what, for anybody with any kind of reasonable scientific training, would know is just kind of stupid, spurious argument, uh, but nonetheless. That resonates. So there's something there, I think, about perhaps it's to do with our lack of trust uh, in, in authority. It's something to do with um, the kind of profound social changes that we're going through. And no doubt COVID is going to make that even worse. Uh, but somewhere in there, there's something important. No, there really is. There's a decline in belief in authority. And whether it's the authority of the medical profession, the authority of our political leaders, whatever it is, with that decline, it leaves the vacuum. And into the vacuum can, and the individualization that's come, comes the idea that, well, my knowledge is as good as your knowledge. My opinion is as good as your opinion. And so I will believe what I believe because it's true. And it may not be true for you, but it is for me. But this is my reality. And people have escaped into that. And with that lack of a center is where you see the polarization, where you see the kind, the kind of fragmentation that we've seen in the U.S. And I think you're seeing in the EU as well. Let me let me ask this, um, George, um, since we have you here, although you didn't write for the forum, this is very much your field. What was your take on January 6th? 
Uh, yes, it was very interesting. I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. I don't think the authorities, the Capitol Police and the National Guard uh, anticipated something like this. Uh, I think the far right has kind of mixed feelings on this. Uh, for example, some people said that it was Antifa that uh, ultimately was behind it. But people in the far right, uh, some of the leaders dismissed that idea. People like Nick Fuentes, he said that was boomer propaganda. Uh, these people who are not really full-on white nationalists, uh, they still want to have that kind of respectability uh, and not really make that great leap and be part of the extreme right. And so, uh, yeah, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise, but I think ultimately it was really a missed opportunity for the far right. It could have been maybe this kind of Lexington and Concord moment for them, but uh, as soon as it was finished unfolding, uh, people on Fox News, the mainstream conservative right, were denouncing the people who were involved, uh, that they weren't really making any excuses for them, say like the political left did for uh, Antifa or Black Lives Matter. They did not have any kind of elite support, at least that I was able to discern. So I think uh, in retrospect, yes, this certainly uh, hurt the, uh, the, the far right uh, and, and even the more respectable conservative uh, movement, I think uh, it had the there could have been the potential uh, for this really to uh, have been kind of a Lexington and Concord moment, but uh, they just kind of uh, 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 mishandled uh, the response to it. And in retrospect, it did not really have any kind of propaganda for value for them the way it might have been. It's interesting because in the immediate aftermath, I think you're completely right. But in retrospect, you see perhaps a majority of the Republican Party and certainly a majority of Republican office holders are changing that view quite a lot. Um, a, a, a revisionist history of what happened and as exactly that, a kind of wake up moment. Yeah, there are some people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, Congresswoman from Georgia. Uh, she has been somewhat supportive, but I haven't really seen anything kind of like a lionization of Ms. Babbitt, the young woman, an Air Force veteran That's who true. was killed, uh, in, say, in the style of George Floyd. And this was a woman mm -hmm. who seemed like very, who she was very respectable, an Air Force veteran. Uh, she was, uh, I, I think she was still married, uh, married for a while, and seemed to have been uh, really kind of like the girl next door. Uh, but it seems like very few people in the at least mainstream conservative movement was really able to uh, to champion her. Yeah, on the far right, it was kind of, she was going to become a kind of horse vessel figure. Yes, yeah, so, yeah that's a good. Even that know. died out. Um, mm -hmm. She would have been a more attractive figure than horse vessel. But yeah, certainly. It simply died, and mm -hmm. so it's it's surprising why. Um, that would be a good study in itself. Yeah, that could change, though. For example, I know I uh, listened to an interview with uh, Donald Trump the other day, and he invoked her name. So more and more, I see some people very slowly are starting to invoke her name and uh, be less uh, less critical of those people who were involved in the January 6th uprising. Yes, Max. Yeah, a not entirely facetious comment. Uh, is anybody aware of any current songs that have been generated by uh, the events of January 6th. So the horse vessel lead inevitably sure. comes to mind as soon as you yeah, mention it. 
He's a great well, star. Horse what, wrote what, how horse he entered into popular culture? Top of the Pops, nineteen thirty-two. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Horace really Vessel wrote that. So it was he who actually wrote the song. Uh, Defund a hoax or hold the flag high. That's a mm -hmm. good question, Max. And after this is over, I'm going to do some searching on the internet and. YouTube, see if I can find something. And if I do, sir, I'll be sure to forward it to you. Send a paper <laughs> to TPV because that's exactly what we need. Yeah, exactly. We can do a musical for him next time. Yeah, I'd like that. Go ahead, Jerry. Rick. Um, I, I just wanted to add another comment. Uh, uh, Professor uh, George had asked me, uh, could the uh, January 6th event happen again and perhaps be successful uh, the next time? Uh, I wanted to add, and I should have added before, that I don't think it could have succeeded unless the economic uh, situation in the United States was much worse than it was in January, uh, uh, so badly that the American middle class was terrified that there might be some kind of communist or far-left revolution in the country. And uh, for all of uh, Trump's hyping of Antifa, most people didn't see Antifa as this great threat. And it wasn't a great threat. We know that absolutely. U.S. intelligence showed that. Um, the, um, uh, so, so I guess I, I would say that those are the two things I would have added. There has, has to be a much, much greater danger of uh, a leftist takeover, uh, nonstop strikes as occurred in Italy after World War I, uh, people raising uh, the red flag over factories, uh, occupying factories after World War I as they did uh, today, actually, as they did after World War I. Um, and uh, unless you had these two things, greater danger of the extreme left, uh, greater ec economic distress, I don't think any kind of uh, uh, march on the Capitol would succeed. Okay, thank you, Richard. Uh, folks, it looks like we're out of time. So I th thank everybody for uh, participating, uh, Richard, Jeff, Max, and uh, especially Lena. Uh, thank you for giving us this, this uh, opportunity in the forum. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast.